Thanks for joining us here at AG Kolkata. We are the church with the open arms and we serve in the city of joy. It is our desire to reach out to those in need and to be instruments of effective change in a hurting world. If you would like to learn more about us, you can simply go to www.agkolkata.org. We hope that you'll enjoy today's message. We are interested in learning more about loving God's word, learning God's word, and living God's word. Yes, amen. And in one of the, the last prayer that Jesus prayed while he was on earth, just before they arrested him, took him to the cross, is recorded for us in John chapter 17. And in John chapter 17, we have this simple, short but powerful prayer. Jesus is looking up to heaven and he's telling the Father. And of course, the them that he refers to is not just the immediate circle of people around him. But he was looking down through the ages to you, to you. To you, to me, when he prayed this prayer, he said, Lord, it's recorded in John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Say it with me. Your word is truth. One more time. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. We believe the Bible is God's word, don't we? But what do we mean? When we say the Bible is God's word, let me spell it out for you again. You can read it with me. When we say the Bible is God's word, we believe the Bible is an accurate and true record of God's word to us, communicated through various human authors. That's what the Bible is. Perhaps most of us believe that. But there are many, perhaps some of us here, yeah. Maybe secretly skeptical. Really? A book written hundreds, thousands of years ago? Is everything true? Every word true? Maybe there are a few small errors, mistakes. Is it really that reliable? Is everything in the Bible true? I mean, what about all the facts of history and geography and science? Uh, Well, we all know, I think it should be obvious, the Bible is not a textbook of history or science. You know, there are some very eager believers who make rash statements and we say, you know, everything there is to know in the world is in the Bible. Not true. Not true. I know we mean well, we try to give God credit. God doesn't need that. Everything that, that all the knowledge in the world is not in the Bible, okay? Some of you are disappointed when I said that. Everything we need to know about God and the world that is essential for salvation and to have a relationship with God is in the Bible. But the Bible is not a science textbook. The Bible is not a calculus textbook. It's not a geography or history textbook. But suppose the Bible teaches clearly 
that the earth is flat. Or the Bible were to say, the universe is carried on the shoulders of three elephants or, you know, some animal. Now, when you read that, obviously, when you read that, it raises questions about, hey, if it says that, or if, for instance, you find in the Bible that Egypt is a country in Europe, it doesn't say that. But suppose you found that. It raises questions of trust. How can I believe what it says about other things? If it's a book that is inspired by God, doesn't God know Egypt is not in Europe? So here's the central question that is the basis of the rest of this message. Can we trust the Bible? Some of you may say, Pastor, what a question to raise and to hear. Let me quickly assert that we accept, and I said that right at the beginning, that the Bible is the word of God. We accept that by faith. But is that all? Are we supposed to just accept it blindly by faith? Or is the Bible worthy of our trust? And if so, what is it in the Bible that captures our trust? that inspires our confidence. The rest of my time, I want to quickly give you three pillars. Here's why I believe the Bible is a book we can trust to be what it claims to be, the Word of God, an accurate and true record of God's Word through us, to us, through human authors. Three pillars. First of all, a pillar of fulfilled prophecy. The Bible contains many predictions that we call prophecies which come to pass hundreds of years, often hundreds of years after they were first spoken. And I want to give you just three illustrations. Obviously, there are many of these, but I only have time to give you illustrations. First of all, the Old Testament in particular has a number of Prophecies concerning the nations and cities around Israel. For instance, you'll find prophecies about Egypt, about Tyre and Sidon, those Philistine cities, about Babylon, about Nineveh, so on and so forth. Let's look at one of these. In Ezekiel 26, actually the whole chapter is a prophecy concerning the destruction of the city of Tyre. Now, it begins by saying, because Tyre made fun of God's people, Israel. They, were, they rejoiced in God's judgment of Tyre. Rather, God's judgment of Israel. The people of Tyre rejoiced in that. And so in 600, approximately 600 BC, Ezekiel speaks this prophecy concerning the destruction of the city of Tyre, this Philistine city. This is what, and I'm only reading a few verses to give you a flavor of what the whole chapter says, 21 verses of the chapter. I am your enemy, O Tyre, and I will bring many nations against you, like the waves of the sea crashing against your shoreline. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and tear down its towers. I will scrape away its soil and make it a bare rock. Verse 7, this is what the sovereign Lord says, from the north I will bring King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon against Tyre. Please notice, I will bring... Many nations against you. It specifies one king, King 
Nebuchadnezzar and scrape away its soil, so on and so forth. Now, if you have time, go look it up. But every detail that Ezekiel predicted was fulfilled in the coming centuries. To begin with, within a few years of Ezekiel's prophecy, King Nebuchadnezzar attacked Tyre in precisely the way that is described in Ezekiel 26. Thereafter, history records that a number of nations assaulted the gates of Tyre, including the nation of Syria, Egypt, and Persia, just to mention a few. And finally, in its climax, almost 300 years later, in 332 BC, history records how Alexander the Great completed the destruction that came in phases to the city of Tyre. And when you read the descriptions of history, and you compare it to what Ezekiel 26 records, the correspondence is stunningly similar. A second illustration concerning fulfillment of prophecy. This has to do with the rebirth of the nation of Israel. Again, it's in Ezekiel 37. And again, this is made in approximately 600 BC, that is approximately 600 years before Christ. Chapter 37 of Ezekiel, two verses. Then he, this he is God, speaking to Ezekiel is me. Then he said to me, son of man, maybe read it with me, okay? Son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying, we have become old dry bones, all hope is gone. Our nation is finished. Therefore, prophesy to them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. Then I will bring you back to the land of Israel. When you read the Old Testament very quickly, you'll find because Israel were the chosen people of God. When I say chosen, chosen for as God's priestly people. They received God's clear revelation of his nature through the Ten Commandments. Now, they misunderstood that election. They thought, you know what, we are God's chosen people. We can do what we like, live the way we like. We're chosen. We're chosen. But their lives betrayed their calling as the people of God. By the way, that's a warning for me and for you. And as a result, you'll find the history of Israel, the Old Testament as well as beyond the history of the Bible, Israel were judged by God. They went into exile many times. And finally, in AD 70, 70 years after the birth of Christ, the Emperor Titus actually laid waste to the city of Jerusalem. After which, the nation of Israel ceased to exist. There was no nation called Israel. Now watch this. Centuries later, precise date is May 15th, 1948. After almost 2,000 years, the nation of Israel was reborn. It's never happened before in the history of the world that a nation which is dead, gone, wiped out of the, off the map, is suddenly 
reborn. And here's the thing, friends. It happened in one day. Isaiah 66 verse 8 had predicted this. Again, several hundreds of years prior to the event. Sorry, hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. Let's read this verse. Isaiah is looking into the future. And as the Holy Spirit inspires him, see what he's saying. Who has ever seen anything as strange as this? Who ever heard of such a thing? Has a nation ever been born in a single day? Has a country ever come forth in a mere moment? See that? The miracle of fulfilled prophecy. I've given you two illustrations. The third one has to do with prophecies concerning the life of ministry, or life and ministry of Jesus. Now we usually visit these sometime during the month of December as we look forward to the Christmas event. So some of this you may be familiar with. But for those who whom it may be new, over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament describe details of Christ's birth, life, death, and even resurrection. The place of Christ's birth is predicted, Bethlehem. The fact that he's going to be born of a virgin is predicted. The details of his suffering and death you will find in Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. Even his resurrection is predicted. Even the details that he will be buried in a rich man's grave. A mathematician by the name of Peter Stoner actually calculated the probability of just eight of these predictions, only eight of them. Forget about the rest of the 200 and what is it, 92 prophecies, just eight of the prophecies. The probability of any one person fulfilling these eight predictions. For those of you who understand probability, you understand this immediately. He said the chance of that happening was 1 in 10 to the power of 17, which is 1 followed by 17 zeros. 10 followed by 17 zeros. No, sorry, 1 followed by 17. Never mind. You say, what does that mean? If you, if you are poor in math, the word probability means nothing to you. Well, let me try and explain it like this. Does anybody have a one rupee coin or two rupee coin? I should have done my homework and got this. Yes, I'm sure Tuli has. She's, oh, you do. Thank you very much. This is one rupee? Okay, it's, anyway, one rupee or two rupee coin. Okay. Now, if you had 10 to the power of 17 of these coins, so it's, I don't know what the, you know, it's not million, it's more than a billion, it's more than a zillion, 10 to the power of 17. And you have to spread it on the floor. Hmm? Take, thank you. You know how much space you would need? If you, if you, uh, yeah, if you just covered the ground with it, it would cover one-fourth of India's landmass. And it wouldn't be just one coin next to the other. It would be two feet deep. Okay. One rupee coins, two feet deep, which covers half, rather one-fourth of India's landmass. Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay. Now you play a game, and you pick up one of those coins, and you put a thick black cross. 
and you fly across the entire area that is filled with these one rupee coins and you drop that coin. And you come back to Calcutta as your base and you give this challenge to someone. You say, you know what? Go, I give you one chance to find that coin. Some of you are saying, Pastor, that sounds ridiculous. What is the possibility that in one try, your friend will be able to select that one coin with the black cross on it? What do you think? One to 10 to the power of 17. How likely is that? Remote, isn't it? Impossible, that's right. In the natural, it's impossible. But you know what? What is impossible with men is possible with God. In other words, even if eight prophecies were to be fulfilled in one person, that's a miracle. But there are over 300 prophecies. What does that tell you? It tells you that when you, when you multiply that by hundreds of prophecies concerning future events, not just the coming of Christ, but the Old Testament, filled with such prophecies, predictions concerning the future, what does it do? It confirms the Bible is a miraculous book. It confirms its supernatural authorship. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, and if you're with me, you're going to say, yes, we can, okay? How many of you say, yes, pastor? I need that encouragement, okay? So what do you think? Can we trust the Bible? Oh, come on, how many people here? Can we trust the Bible? Yes. Thank you. We can trust God's word because it is true. That's the first pillar, fulfilled prophecy. Secondly, the Bible's factual accuracy is the second pillar. The Bible was written by about 40 different human authors over a period of about 1,500 years. The authors include doctors, tax collectors, fishermen, shepherds, kings, farmers, judges, religious leaders. Can you imagine 40 people from this congregation writing independently over 1,500 years? What is the chance that they even have one message? Well, apart from that, what is amazing is the unbelievable historical, geographical, and scientific accuracy of what the Bible records. As I said before, the Bible is not a textbook which is intended to teach science, history, or geography. But what is amazing is there's not a single fact of history, geography, or science that is contradicted or that contradicts what the Bible affirms. I wish we had time to expound this. But you know, there's a, mod, there's a common conception that you know, you cannot be an intelligent scientist or someone who believes in science and believe the Bible. That's a lie. If anything, modern science has only corroborated, strengthened the accuracy, the scientific accuracy of what the Bible teaches. For instance, concerning the origins of the universe, in the last hundred years, scientific discoveries have come closer and closer to all of the essential assertions of the Bible concerning creation and the origin of the universe. I'm just going to give you a summary quote from Dinesh D'Souza. 
It'll come up on the screen. It's a summary, of course, but uh, it's open to conversation. The Bible is not a science textbook, but what it does say about creation, about the fact of creation, and about the order of creation turns out to be accurate. The reason he uses that phrase is to everybody's surprise. Written by doctors, fishermen, farmers, so on and so forth, scientifically accurate. The Bible has been vindicated by the findings of modern science. When you come to history, the Bible contains detailed geographical and historical information because it's, it's located in real time and space. It refers to real people, real places. So nothing in the Bible is mythological. There is no mythology in the Bible. In fact, again, whenever there was any doubt about a certain place, the existence of a certain place, say 100 years ago or 200 years ago, people raised questions about whether there is such a place or whether there is, there is such a person. Archaeology. How many of you know what archaeology is? Archaeology is nothing but an attempt to recreate the past by uncovering the ruins of, of past civilizations. So in the absence of detailed written history, science of archaeology uncovers civilizations which have been covered and recreates the past from what evidence they observe. In every case, archaeology has always confirmed what the Bible says. Again, just an illustration. There are a number of kings, emperors, Mentioned in the Bible, history verifies the existence. In the New Testament, for instance, a number of names of government officials are mentioned. And in every case, they have been proved to have really existed. And I want to give you one illustration in Romans chapter 16, verse 23. Paul is writing to the Romans from a city in Macedonia called Corinth. Modern Greece. This is what he says. He says, Gaius says hello to you. He's my host and also serves as host to the whole church. Erastus, the city treasurer, sends you his greetings. Now, the reason those days city treasurer means he's an official of high status. Okay. And he refers to this guy, Erastus. Did he really exist? Was he really the city treasurer? There's another reference to Erastus in 19, Acts 19 verse 22 in which he's described as Paul's co-worker. So here's this high official who actually worked alongside Paul in the work of the gospel. Here he's named as the city treasurer, a high-placed official. Now, it's only as recently as 1928 when archaeologists were uncovering a site in a city of modern days, Corinth, they were uncovering a theater. They discovered an inscription which refers to Erastus as the city treasurer of, the, of, of Corinth. And the statement says, he laid the pavement, this pavement, at his own expense. And it's dated AD 50. Did you see that? Around the time when Paul would have written the letter of Romans. 
Say, Pastor, how are you speaking with such great conviction? Several years ago, I had the privilege of visiting Corinth. I've seen it with my own eyes. The inscription that describes Erastus as a city treasurer who laid that pavement. You can go on and look at hundreds of such illustrations, friends. All of us know the name Luke, right? He authored the Gospel of Luke. He was a doctor. Not only authored the Gospel of Luke, he is also the author of the Acts of the Apostles, which follows the Gospel of John, which traces the growth of the Jesus movement after the resurrection of Jesus, for the first 30 years at least. Now Luke, in his writings, names 32 countries, 54 cities or towns, and nine islands. And in every case, history has verified the existence of those cities, countries, and islands, which have names of which have been recorded without error. Some of you are saying, Pastor, what's the point of all this? Very, why, why do we need to know all this? Well, here's the reason, friends. If the Bible shows itself to be accurate, in matters which were beyond the capacity of the authors of that period. For instance, in its scientific fact, in the history it records, in the geography it records, in the facts it records, if it's factually accurate, it inspires our trust in everything else it says. We can uh, see it as dependable on every other assertion of truth. We can trust if the Bible is accurate in, in, in placing Corinth in modern-day Greece, if the Bible is accurate in saying he sits above the circle of the earth at a time when everybody believed the earth is flat, when it goes on to talk about God, about man and the world, we can trust what it says about God, about the universe. We can trust what it records about the life of Jesus, his teachings, his miracles, his death and resurrection, we can trust what it says about heaven, about hell, about salvation. We can trust what it says completely. That's the second pillar. But what do you think? Can we trust the Bible? That's about 10 people. Can we trust the Bible? Thank you. We can trust the Bible is God's word, and God's word is truth. I've just discussed two pillars, right? The miracle of fulfilled prophecy, the unbelievable factual accuracy of a book as old as the Bible, and thirdly, its transforming quality. No historian sociologist will challenge the fact that the Bible has had powerful influence on culture and civilization. It has shaped art, literature, law, all of the essential moral foundations of civil society. Much of the jurisprudence, the laws of many countries, based on the ethics of the Bible. But even beyond that, down through the centuries, there are millions upon millions of people whose lives have been transformed 
The Bible causes supernatural change in the lives of people. Now hear this now. It causes miraculous supernatural change in the life of people when its message is understood, accepted, and applied. Do you get it? The Bible is not a book of magic. You don't just open it and as you read the words, you know, it's not like reading a mantra or something will happen. No, friends. When its message is understood, appropriated, believed, accepted, applied, and obeyed, it is challenges to transform lives supernaturally. And many of us here this morning are evidence of that, aren't we? Millions upon millions of testimonies of evil men and women whose lives have been changed. Criminals who've become saints overnight. Drug addicts and drunkards who have been delivered. The sick have been healed through the power of the Bible. The demonized are set free. How does this happen? Simply because the Bible is true. Amen? And its truth has the capacity to transform lives and to set people free. And this is what Jesus declared in John chapter 8, a verse that I want you to learn and learn well in June, John chapter 8 verse 32. Let's read it together as it comes up on the screen. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Say it again. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Amen. Amen. Let's give the Lord a clap offering. Yes, Lord. Has your life been set free through the power of God's truth? Oh, maybe five people. Come on, I'm doing all the work here. All you've got to say is yes. Has your life been transformed by the truth of God's word? Yes. Slightly better, but I can live with it. Can we trust the Bible? Yes. Yeah, three words, yes we can. Can we trust the Bible? Yes. At the end of the day, we can say we can trust the Bible. Yes, because of fulfilled prophecy. Yes, because if it's factually accurate. But most, first and foremost, because we have experienced its power. That's where that phrase power to change comes, friends. Yes, that campaign we had recently. It has the power to change. This is how Charles Swindle put it. He said, news articles may inform us, novels may inspire us, poetry may enrapture us. But, read that with me, only the living, active word of God can transform us. Jesus said, and I read this right at the beginning of this message, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is true. What does sanctify mean and how does it work? Sanctify is simply transform, change. This is his last prayer for you and for me. He said, Lord, may the experience change. May their lives be transformed through the power of the truth. I'm going to read one passage and then I close, okay? Make a few comments and then I close. I think this is, this is in many ways the cutting edge of this morning's message. I don't want you to miss this because that's the point of the Bible. That's the point of us learning God's truth. 
Let's read together verses from 1 Peter 1, 23 onwards. For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. One minute, please notice. One hand, there's a life that will quickly end and a life that will last forever. Got it? Can you see that? A life that will quickly end and a life that will last forever. What makes the difference? It comes from the eternal living word of God. Let's read on. As the scripture says, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a fly in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. How many of us know that? Huh? That's not rocket science. You know that. They pastor, not much grass, not much flower around us. Well, you can look at your face. Not you young people, but the older ones. Look at your forehead. People are like grass. 25. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And that word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's we go down then to chapter 2, verse 1. So get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment. Very quickly, this is it's too rich. To rush through, but I have no option and I plead with you, go home and just read it again and read it again based on some of the pointers I give you right now. You see, what, Paul, what Peter is saying here, life that quickly ends. What is that life? That life is my life and your life before the word of God comes to us. You get it? We are like the grass of the field. Here today, gone tomorrow. No future. It's a life that will quickly end. It's a, another version says perishable. A life that will end quickly. And then comes the good news. I hear the word of God. And this is what he says. When you receive that message by faith, we are born again. Amen. What does it mean to be born again? When the seed of God's eternal word is planted in us, we are born again. When the eternal word of God, the seed of God's eternal word is planted in us, we experience the new birth, the Bible says. But here's the thing, and this is for all of us, even if you are already born again. If we are truly born again, then we begin a lifelong process of Transformation. That's what it means to be sanctified. Transformation. How does that work, Pastor? The seed of God's word transmits God's nature to us. In a sense, it's an injection, a divine injection in my heart. God's divine nature is planted in me. And then it grows, right? A seed that doesn't, that doesn't grow is dead. But a true seed has life. Like that's the, the power of life is in the seed. And the seed of God's word grows in us. 
as the spirit of god waters it and you know what happens when the seed of god goes in us a uh, seed of god's word grows in us we get rid of all evil behavior god's nature as the seed of god's word grows pushes out deceit hypocrisy jealousy unkind the works this is only sample you get it by the way it's not all song and dance it can be very painful do you know why i don't like change do you i don't we are creatures of habit i don't want to change my language i love the feeling you know some people you know what it is envy feels nice anger feels nice it gives you temporary pleasure but when the divine nature of god is planted in us through his word it fights against it and that is not pleasant and sometimes the seed has to break through the callous nature that resists the growth and that's when you say ouch but here's the thing friends we can only be sanctified you can only grow as we are nourished by the spiritual milk of god's word he says as newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into full experience of salvation if you don't get that milk if you don't uh, nourish yourself on god's word guess what you're going to be you have the put that seed has the potential to be a great tree and you're going to be a little twig that comes out of the ground that's all and god says that's not why i planted my seed in you that's not why i created you you were made to be a huge beautiful tree that is a blessing to my world don't settle for being a little twig that pokes out of the ground when i've called you to far greater things but you know if that is to happen you must learn to cry out cry out for this nourishment like the hungry little baby when it's hungry you know it'll bring the house down when it's hungry because it craves for nourishment my prayer for this service and not just the service for the rest of the year is that god will help us to develop that that yearning that craving for the milk of god's word so that we can grow we can be sanctified What do you think? Can we trust the Bible? Yes. Try it again. Three words. Can we trust the Bible? Yes, we can. I've given you three pillars reasons. But friends, at the end of the day, it's the fact that it has power to change lives today. We can rest assured that God's word is true. Thanks for listening to this message from AG Kolkata. We hope you can stay connected by following us online. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at AGC Kolkata.
We would love to know how this message has touched your life. Please take a moment to share your story by emailing us at stories at agcolcutta.org. Hope you have a great week ahead.